artificial intelligence is here to stay and support humans. So what we are interested in is a symbiosis of AI and humans. We don't want AI to substitute for any profession, for any specialist, for any therapist. A human being cannot be um, cannot be uh, substituted for anything, for any artificial intelligence entity. So uh, we are happy that uh, we have advanced AI to support people who are prone to suffering from social isolation in the long run. I think what's interesting is that people have been working on these models for a very, very long time. And the sort of speeding up, really, it's sort of a race between a bunch of different companies. And interestingly, within the Kai community, everything from the techniques of generative AI through to the ethics of scale uh, around generative AI and similar uh, you know, techniques. But to your point, everybody now feels almost unleashed mm. to talk about it from a very specific perspective. I think Kai is interesting because we're looking at the cutting edge, right? And yeah. so, like, you know, when I started at Kai 20 years ago, wearables, which is one of my backgrounds, like, didn't exist here. And so, as these technologies have kind of proliferated, like, they're becoming more and more mainstream here, like, out in the real world, it's still taking a little bit while to catch up. And so, it's like this interesting kind of glimpse of what the future could be. From my perspective, you know, someone who, who cares about democratic control of these technologies, that's really, uh, really concerning, right? Yeah. Because, because yeah. the, the, Entities; these are private companies. They are they are not, you know, under democratic control at all. They are largely unaccountable. Um, and the nature of this technology, like I said, is really driving further uh, concentration of power. And that's something that I think, you know, the HCI community should not accept uncritically. There are other ways of doing AI. Yeah. I think it's a really interesting space. Like, there's going to be technological differentiation for all these AIs, but there's going to be policy differentiation too, either from a, a government perspective and or an individual company perspective. And I think there's going to be some interesting like plays between those of where does the market go, why do people choose different ones, and I suspect the like ethical considerations, the data privacy issues, the the policies around what's safe and what's not. Those are all going to play out differently amongst the in the industry. I think. Hi, I'm Mike Green, a freelance user research lead and digital consultant based in the UK. Welcome to Understanding Users. In this podcast series, I chat with digital experts from a variety of disciplines, including user research, UX and service design, development and product management, and there's even a founder or two. I talk to them about how they came to be in their current roles, what they've learned along the way, and the challenges they face in designing and building digital products and services with users in mind. And while many of these conversations are recorded remotely, I'm also keen to get out into the wild and meet my guests face-to-face -face where possible. So in some episodes, you'll hear me prowling the corridors of UX conferences in different parts of the globe to get the views of speakers and attendees alike. These are intended to be relaxed, informal chats with professionals who are keen to share their experiences. So sit back and enjoy. And now a word from our sponsor. Oxford Insights are specialist researchers helping governments and public sector organisations around the world understand and harness technology for public good. From AI to data governance to business analysis, Oxford Insights take a clear, user-centred approach, co-designing projects with you to help define the problem, your approach to solving it, and what success looks like for you. Whether that's a new national strategy, a pilot programme, a network of like-minded people from around the world, 
a media event, or a startup accelerator. Their recent clients include the UK government's Ministry of Justice, the United Nations Development Programme, the Government of Colombia, the International Development Research Centre, and the Development Bank of Latin America. Their AI Readiness Index, which they've run for the last five years, or the Human-Centred Design Index that they launched last year, both help countries understand where they stand relative to their peers and how and where to start improving their performance. With 15 years of experience, credibility and global exposure, the team at Oxford Insights is the key reference point for those seeking to deliver public innovation and bring future policy issues to the centre of government and the public sector today. To find out more about their work, visit OxfordInsights.com. What is generative artificial intelligence? What aspects of generative AI are academics at the cutting edge of research currently investigating? How can UX researchers and designers apply lessons from this research in their own work? And should we learn to love or fear AI? In the first of two episodes from the CHI 2023 Human Computer Interaction Conference in Hamburg, I chat in person with five attendees about the events, their own research, and what the future holds for generative AI. There isn't possibly time to cover the vast range of great talks and sessions at CHI 2023, but I hope this will give you a flavour of what was on offer and what those who attended took away from the event. Thanks for listening and enjoy the episode. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Churchill. I am the Keynotes Chair for CHI 2023. And when I'm not involved in CHI and various other activities um, for the community, I am a Senior Director at Google. My name is Anna Xigu and I'm a PhD um, researcher on uh, human-robot interaction at the School of Computing, University of Kent, UK. So uh, I presented a paper like an hour ago uh, on the use of uh, grief pods uh, and um, the impact it can have on mourners and uh, actually how we can use uh, uh, chatbots to cope with grief. My name is Kars Alfink. I'm a PhD candidate at uh, TU Delft. All right, so my, my research is uh, about algorithmic decision-making in the public sector. And I look specifically at how to design those systems for contestability. So I'm Kent Lyons. Uh, I am running my own startup now called Anova Studio. Um, my name is RG Galiega. I'm a PhD student studying in um, Future University Hakodate. That's a university in Hokkaido, Japan. My research is about applying generative AI in the field of uh, furniture design. Right. And what have your reflections been this year so far on, on Kai 2023 in Hamburg? It's the largest Kai. Uh, a lot of people here. Um, the venue is actually very good because some Kais, the venue is not as great as this one is. I think it's very well organized and the range of topics is huge and I'm really enjoying seeing these very, very different uh, topic areas and seeing a lot of the student presentations. Uh, and this year I'm honored to be uh, one of the student design competition judges. Um, and I just did that this morning and fantastic presentations by the students. My first time was maybe 20 some years ago and I've probably been to about 15 guys. And uh, what are your reflections on this particular, uh, the one this year? Um, I think the biggest reflection is it's just awesome to be back in person and have everyone here. Well, overwhelming. <laughs> There's a... Uh, I think over 800 papers being presented. There's like more than 4,000 attendees. Uh, it's, uh, it's huge. Uh, so navigating all of that is uh, quite daunting. But it's also 
just great to connect to so many people who care deeply about these things. Um, so uh, yeah, it's, it's also very energizing and inspiring. It's a great experience. I urgently ask every, anybody who, who would like to, um, to have such an experience to come here, either present the paper or even as an attendee. The role and the kind of impact of generative AI, uh, obviously it's all over everyone's lips, uh, you know, far beyond the confines of this building. And I'm just fascinated to know your reflections on that compared to even a year ago. Yeah, I've definitely taken the world by storm. And I think what's interesting is that people have been working on these models for a very, very long time. And the sort of speeding up, really, it's sort of a race between a bunch of different companies. and. Interestingly, within the Kai community, everything from the techniques of generative AI through to the ethics of scale uh, around generative AI and similar uh, you know, techniques, we've been talking about this for a long time. But to your point, everybody now feels almost unleashed mm. to talk about it from a very specific perspective of how it is disrupting the industry or industries into which many of the students and faculty uh, consult or you know grow their careers. So I think it's it's the sort of politics around it, and it's the consequences for career trajectories that I'm hearing a lot of. That's new, whereas before the techniques were around, but we weren't sort of thinking about oh gosh, where do I you know where do I put this? So it felt like a lot of the techniques around generative AI were sort of fun projects um, and a little bit like a fancy sandwich looking for a picnic and now the picnic is out there and everybody's trying to have the biggest picnic. All right so my, my research is uh, about algorithmic decision making in the public sector and I look specifically at how to design those systems for contestability um, and I do that f using practice-based design research methods. So making stuff and then using that stuff to research questions around contestable AI is how I call it. And the particular example you gave was camera cars, I believe, and yeah. kind of uh, in and around Amsterdam, is that right? And people's right to basically contest films that have been made of them, you know, using these camera cars. Tell, tell me more. Indeed, yeah. Uh, so the, the study that I uh, presented on here is, um, uh, yeah, uses camera cars as a running example. Yeah. As, as, yeah, an example of what I call public AI systems. Yeah. So AI systems that are used for public services provisioning. And these camera cars uh, in Amsterdam uh, are used for parking, monitoring and enforcement, but other applications are uh, being considered as well and um, I think they're very interesting from a, a contestability perspective because um, you know they drive around in publicly accessible space so they have this physical presence mm. but then they are also connected to these larger you know what we call uh, socio-technical systems uh, in, 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 in research uh, that operate kind of outside of people's uh, awareness right. uh, but they do impact their daily lives and so um, from a design perspective, uh, the question is, okay, how do we make sure that uh, these systems don't harm people's uh, right to autonomy, for example, that these systems are, are still under democratic control? And, and that's fascinating. And you talk about, you know, cars in public spaces. 
from your research, how aware are people, passers-by, kind of users in general of these systems and what's being done with their data and the implications of that? Yeah, um, it, it varies a lot. Is what I haven't looked at this part specifically, but I know that uh, people's attitudes to these systems, you know, predictably are you know wide-ranging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> from uh, indifference uh, all the way to yeah, uh, you know, strong dislike, suspicion, and so on and so forth. But beyond that, I think um, yeah, the kind of the responsible use of these systems should not depend on in our individual kind of attitudes towards right. them. Yeah, I yeah. think we are all entitled to, you know, these systems being deployed in a in a in a decent, uh, responsible manner. So what are the implications then for designers, so service designers, product designers, civil servants in the, in the public yep. sphere, in terms of kind of creating these, these systems and processes and you know, making them available in, in the real world? Yeah, so, so what I looked, looked at for, for the paper I presented here is, um, um, is actually, uh, goes one step further, uh, is that um, I, um, I basically designed a, a uh, concept camera car that is already contestable, and I created a concept video around that. Um, that is like, freely available online. People can can look it up and, and uh, see it. And I use that to to indeed interview um, uh, civil servants, um, asking them about whether they think it's a good idea in the first place to make these systems contestable from right. you know, from their perspective. Um, and if so, uh, what uh, what challenges do we face when we when we try to do that? Um, and um, and so so yeah, I'm really interested in so beyond uh, um, simply selling people on the idea of contestability. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm I'm pretty confident that we'll we'll need to put these measures into place. So then I think the camera cars are just a really useful example to explore. Uh, yeah, how to actually do that and what, what, what challenges we face. So if I, as a, as a citizen, want to contest mm -hmm. uh, a camera car as an example, mm -hmm. what can I do, what should I do, how can I do that? Yeah, so I should, I should, I should say that, of course, it really depends on what, what these cars are, are, are used for. So in the, in the case of parking enforcement, for example, you could get a fine, and, yeah. and if, it's, if it's done using these cars, uh, they use automated number plate recognition. Right. Uh, they're not, uh, you know, they're not infallible. Right. Uh, so there are there are cases where they make a mistake and you get uh, a fine a fine uh, uh, by mistake. And then you know how do you appeal such a decision, right? So you need to have access to uh, the images that that were used to find right. you and, right. and all these all these things so that you can actually you have recourse basically. Yeah. Um, and, and these measures are in place for this specific example for a real-world world system. But um, that's for one application. And, and if, we, if, if, if the use of you know, camera cars as kind of these sensing, mobile sensing platforms is expanded, mm. it might not be, you know, there, there might be other applications where it's, where it's less straightforward or the impacts are, are more indirect or impact groups rather than individuals. But the basic principle is the same. You, you need some insight into how these things w work and arrive mm -hmm. at decisions. And also, in my view, what's very important is that you need a justification for why these mm. systems are doing the things that they are doing. Mm. So not just a factual explanation, but also, you know, why are why are these things desirable, basically? Mm. And then you need, you know, channels for 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 ways to kind of uh, um, um, uh, contact uh, system operators, the, the city council or, or, or whomever, uh, so that you can, um, uh, you know 
uh, appeal uh, mm. individual decisions or, or the system more globally. And, um, and then there needs to be the, the ability to have a debate or a dialogue with, with system operators. Mm. So it's, it's not enough to be able to complain or whatever and it just disappears into a void and mm -hmm. maybe you hear something back, maybe you don't. You actually need to have uh, the possibility of exchanging viewpoints and there needs to be an obligation for system operators to also yeah, respond, uh, revise, uh, review these decisions, um, um, yeah, those sorts of things. That's really interesting because in, I suppose in the personal sphere, the obvious example is something like the Amazon Ring or the Google doorbell. Yeah. And I've got one myself, but yeah. I'm very conscious that every time someone comes up my driveway, whether they like it or not, I'm recording them. Yeah. That data is being stored in a server somewhere that belongs to Google. <laughs> Did, have they given their consent to be recorded? No, they haven't. Yeah. You know, what, what's your view on that? Yeah, well, those doorbells are actually a contentious uh, issue in, in uh, many Dutch uh, cities. Uh, uh, and uh, local governments are, are uh, you know, drawing up local regulations around them because indeed they are invading or they are recording you know, beyond yes, uh, your, yeah. the private sphere basically yeah, yeah. Um, uh, with uh, yeah indeed and, and they are commercial products uh, so so there's no accountability basically for for data collection and so i yeah personally i i think i think that's a problem i don't <laughs> i don't like them i understand why put people put them on the at the on their doors but i yeah. personally dislike them um and I think it's 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 an indication of a larger problem, which which is very much you know related to how these uh, technologies are in in this case this, these technologies are sold as consumer products, yeah. but it's about collective goods around you know public safety, and and there's a specific particular model that's basically being sold. It's like okay, we can solve that through consumer choice, basically, right? Yeah. Individual consu consumer choice, and that's at odds with I think public values. From my perspective, you know, someone who, who cares about democratic control of these technologies, that's really, uh, really concerning, right? Yeah. Because because yeah. the the entities, these are private companies. They are they are not, you know, under democratic control at all. They are largely unaccountable, um, and the nature of this technology, like I said, is really driving further uh, concentration of power. And that's something that I think. You know, the HCI community should not accept uncritically. There are other ways of doing AI. Yeah. You, you mentioned that um, before we started recording that you were in industry before academia. I'm interested to know kind of the how you crossed the, the threshold, if you like, yeah. and how you found the how you find the difference. Well, the difference, uh, the, the thing that drew me to research is that uh, uh, I wanted some kind of space for contemplation and, and and to think more deeply about some of these issues, and certainly that's. That's possible in academia much more than than it is in uh, in industry. Um, so so that's been great. And and specifically at uh, my institution at, at at TU Delft, what's also great in the uh, industrial design engineering faculty is that there's a long tradition of using uh, design to do research. And so I get to kind of leverage all that practical experience for doing research now, and it's it's ex accepted and encouraged. Um, uh, so, you know, the paper that I presented here today is, is, a, is a nice example of that, the, the concept video I created together with a professional filmmaker, right. um, you know, th those sorts of things. Um, uh, so uh, it's, it's been, you know, it's, it's been a challenge, of course, like making that shift, yeah. uh, but it's also very uh, rewarding. So uh, I presented a paper like an hour ago uh, on the use of uh, grief pods uh, and um, the impact it can have on mourners and uh, actually how we can use uh, uh, chatbots to cope with grief.
Yeah, and it was a fascinating talk. And and tell me more about this because we've seen chatbots used, you know, typically in you know business interactions with your bank or you know organisations like that. But to do it in the context of grief uh, is a you know very emotional and emotive subject. Tell me more about how yeah. you went about that. Yeah, the thing is, we wanted to explore how groups that face complex social situations, such as the mourners, um, have already used um, chatbots. So in our paper, we found two um, chatbots uh, being used by. Uh, mourners. One was Replica and the other one was Project December. So um, uh, it was uh, the, the um, interesting um, findings uh, pertain to the fact that um, all mourners achieved a sense of companionship and social connectedness with the chatbot, which further made them uh, feel more confident in terms of socialization and made them regain the social connectedness they had lost, they had lost uh, following the loss of their beloved person. So what are the implications for designers of, of chatbots going forward in, in contexts like this or, or any other, would you say? Tech is not actually where it should be now. I mean, um, chatbots are the most advanced type of dialogue system, especially GPT-4 now. With the advent of GPT-4, we can customise uh, the conversational experiences of mourners um, to, um, to the deceased. Um, uh, so... Uh, I guess that in a few years from now, we will be able to provide specific applications that will um, ha- will have include all data from uh, the deceased, of course, uh, after having the consent of the deceased before dying, and um, uh, having a more um, a conversation which will have more social fidelity. Because uh, one another finding is that our uh, participants were eager to suspend their disbelief in order to chat with the deceased. So sometimes conversational contingency didn't play a role. They, it was just the emotional bonding that they felt while chatting to a bot that simulated the deceased person. Because we have to admit that there have been some limitations, the chatbots were erratic, the chatbots made mistakes and uh, were really awkward sometimes in terms of the interaction. But the participants actually didn't lose their confidence and they kept interacting and um, just because they, the need to interact with the deceased was bigger compared to the um, uh, perfection of the chatbot. And how did this interaction happen? Was it done verbally or was it done by text? So, um, uh, all participants use chatbots which are uh, text-based. Uh, so, uh, um, yes, I mean, uh, Replica, they chatted uh, with... Um, uh, with uh, the application, uh, while in Project December it is a web-based, uh, um, a web-based um, a grief pod, and in that grief pod you actually write a very descriptive paragraph um, uh, describing the uh, main traits of the disease. You have to be very concise. Then a matrix is created, and then um, um, you are good to go and interact with uh, the simulation of the disease. And what about ethical considerations, Anna, in terms of data privacy, in terms of kind of what they're revealing? What are your views on that? This is a this is a big um, uh, chapter for discussion, and I don't think that um, uh, there have been the specific guidelines, uh, you know, under track so that we can say this because uh, all these people, the participants. try to recreate the deceased post-death. So they describe their personality uh, because the dialogue system is that advanced that it gives them that chance. But I think that um, in the next uh, uh, recent years, I mean, we're going to see um, people who are on the verge of dying or before dying, they will have to fill in a consent form. 
so that they are also aware of how their data are going to be used. Because, yeah, th- there are lots of ethical uh, problems there uh, and dilemmas. Yeah. Wow. And um, if there was one thing you wanted the audience of, the, of your talk to take away from your session, what would it be? It is that uh, artificial intelligence is here to stay and support humans. So what we are interested in is a symbiosis of AI and humans. We don't want AI to substitute for any profession, for any specialist, for any therapist. A human being cannot be um, cannot be uh, substituted for anything, for any artificial intelligence entity. So uh, we are happy that uh, we have advanced AI to support people who are vulnerable in uh, vulnerable um, in terms of socialization or social skills and who are prone to suffering from social isolation in the long run. Right. And another core message is that we should continue to live having the deceased in our life but under different lens. He has to be with us. We don't have to achieve closure. We don't have to to stop remembering the deceased in order to feel better. We can feel better with the deceased in our lives in a different way. And what about consciousness? This idea yeah. that your, in some ways your consciousness will carry on yeah. after you've died is... Consciousness is the only thing that is actually dynamic, real, and not mortal. It's mortal because our body is mortal. That's what makes it mortal. Uh, I mean, you know, there are like sci-fi scenarios of uploading your consciousness to an iCloud thing and then oh. downloading to an embodied uh, robot. Tech is not there, but imagine, this could also lead us to something beyond, you know? This is immortality almost, but not in the sense of a physical self, but in the sense of a robotic self with our consciousness. And is that a future you, you foresee? Uh, this will take a lot, a lot of years, even decades. I mean, to me, the most imminent thing is to try and use artificial intelligence for good. Because I see a lot of people and lots of uh, professionals are getting skeptical about the usage, like it will make some professions redundant. Uh, they think that um, tech is moving so so rapidly forwards that uh, you know it will substitute people. I don't think that's the case. Especially at this moment, we're not talking about singularity. At this moment, we're talking about having AI support people who are isolated, who feel lonely, who feel needs that cannot be fulfilled by human beings just because they are unable to have any human-to-human relationships. Why not use artificial intelligence to cater for this? Uh, so, so I think that in the foreseeable, in the uh, immediate foreseeable future, we have to make the best use we can of AI to help people. Yeah, I think there's going to be like I think with Kai in particular, there's a lot of kind of opportunity to explore new technologies, and so yeah, I expect with, at this Kai and then future Kai's in particular, there's going to be lots of you know large language model, ChatGPT type work. There's a few here already, which is interesting to see how fast things are moving. And tell me a little bit about your own organization in Nova Studio. Yeah, so I just started a startup about a year ago. Um, so I've spent most of my career in corporate research and basically with the charter of going and creating new technologies for the future of the company. And often those new technologies are really difficult to transfer into the business units. And so, but they're still really good ideas. And so while there's lots of effort put into creating new technologies, there's very little effort into creating new businesses. And so that's basically the opportunity I'm trying to take. How can we do this like novel research like Akai, but then actually spin it out into new products, new companies, as opposed to trying to shoehorn it into a big, a big business and an existing product. So it's kind of an accelerator model that you're, you're working on? You're yeah, basically, yeah. So it's kind of a hybrid between a corporate research lab and an incubator. Right. And uh, can you give me any examples of kind of recent uh, 
products that have that have been commercialized? Yeah, so um, I haven't been at this long, that long. Um, so I started with actually some old research. So it was research that was done 15 years ago in this community about uh, video editing. So you take video editing that's mostly talking head video, you create a transcript from that, and now you have text uh, of the video. You can then edit the text very quickly. You can read all the mistakes. You can see where the gaps are in the in the transcript that no longer are needed in the video. So basically, it lets you rapidly create a rough draft of your of your video edit. Mm. And where do you see uh, kind of user experience design and research as a discipline evolving based on kind of what you're what you're seeing and. Yeah, so I mean, I think Kai's interesting because we're looking at the cutting edge, right? And yeah. so, like, you know, when I started at Kai 20 years ago, wearables, which is one of my backgrounds, like, didn't exist here. And so, as these technologies have kind of proliferated, like, they're becoming more and more mainstream here, like, out in the real world, it's still taking a little bit while to catch up. And so, it's like this interesting kind of glimpse of what the future could be. And in terms of ethics, which is, of course, quite a you know, hot topic, and certainly at Kai, there's a lot of chat about you know, the use of personal data and so on in, in AI. What's your, what's your view on that? Yeah, I mean, uh, this community is also very conscientious about like that. I mean, just as training, we have human subjects training, all these other things. Like, as soon as you go into the real world with companies, then things are a little bit different. Um, I think it's a really interesting space. Like, there's going to be technological differentiation with all these AIs, but there's going to be policy differentiation too, either from a, a government perspective and or an individual company perspective. And I think there's going to be some interesting like plays between those of where does the market go? Why do people choose different ones? And I suspect the like ethical considerations, the data privacy issues, the the policies around what's safe and what's not, those are all going to play out differently amongst the in the industry. I think. And what excites you uh, about this world uh, in terms of kind of what you're seeing at the moment, and conversely, what? challenges you or kind of concerns you about the direction of travel? Um, so, I mean, like, again, with Kai more broadly, like, seeing all the new technologies is always fun. And I mean, AI is potentially another one of those new technologies. I mean, it's perennially new. Like, it was like speech recognition was going to be here soon, any day now, and it yeah. took, you know, 20 years for that. Um, so we'll see with, with like, things like large language models, if that happens or not, it feels qualitatively different. Um, like, Kai's very much focused on usability and making sure the thing's useful. But, like, from the startup perspective, like, it could be a dumpster fire and barely working, and if people are still flocking to it, you know you have something. And things like some of these large language models where they're clearly flawed, but everyone's still clearly running to them, I think there's something interesting there. Yeah. And what advice would you give to someone who wanted to either come to Kai or present at Kai? Um, so coming to Kai, I think, is relatively easy. It's a very open and welcoming community. Uh, community. Um, in terms of presenting at Kai, it's a lot of work. Like writing these papers, and you know, you really have to be, you know, cutting edge, state of the art, um, to to really participate on the presentation side. Yes. So it does involve generative AI, with um, choosing materials for furniture products or interior rooms, because materials they play a large part when um, designing those kinds of things. It's about assessing a virtual output in the process of making a real output. In this case, it's about um, assessing 3D renderings or 3D models of furniture, materials, textures used in those kinds of products. And so my, my, my research um, is, is about how can we take advantage of generative AI in generating uh, textures and materials for products in the field of furniture and interior design because those domains are um, a lot more complex in comparison to 
other domains that generative AI has been previously applied on. But it's a lot different in interior design and in, in, and in furniture design because you have to actually make it and make it feasible to make. Like you said, you have to make a physical output. In order for me to first gain knowledge on how they on how they assess like the materials used in a product, I actually interviewed um, uh, industrial designers, um, furniture designers, and interior designers on how they review deliverables um, in the process of making uh, a real product. Designers think about other things such as if that wood could be locally sourced, if they have the budget for that, if they have the manufacturing uh, machines to make using that material, if that material, if that product with that material made of that material is that appropriate um, in certain environments, let's say if you're designing outdoor furniture, is it waterproof? Those kinds of um, things are really hard to consider when you're making a system using generative AI. Um, the designers can rely on generative AI to uh, suggest materials and and take advantage of, let's say, stable diffusion to create like image texture maps in order to change the material of a product mainstream software it's just that it takes really long and it's very expensive so that's kind of like the drawback of generative uh design it requires a lot of computation so i don't think it's like accessible for everyone unless you have like a lot of budget or hardware what opportunities does generative ai present uh, both to kind of researchers in an academic environment but also kind of organizations and conversely what risks or challenges does it pose would you say well, I think, you know, there's a, there's a lot of, I'm going to say a slightly different version of this. Um, generative AI is a set of techniques really, really, really interesting around creativity. And so people are sort of saying, you know, it's going to replace designers. And I, I don't believe that for a second. I think it's going to change design practice. Um, it's going to replace, you know, writing going to replace coding I don't think so I think that the tools are going to become available to extremely smart creative people who will use them hopefully to good ends although we've already heard that there's a lot of you know hackers and so forth who are taking advantage um, so I think that the opportunities are really to uh, accelerate speed up I'm going to give you an example around uh, coding so you know you can generate code that is very familiar code um, sort of replication code for different contexts much more quickly but when it comes to actually understanding whether the code really does run or does not run effectively you're going to have people doing some kind of oversight at least i think you should um, is it going to speed up the process of production i think so is it going to speed up the process of, for example, debugging, I think so. Mm -hmm. um, in the art world, is it going to speed up the potential for a very, very smart artist, a very talented artist, to explore a space or a design space? Yes. So I'm, I'm very optimistic. Now, to come back to the second part of the question, how is it going to change organizations or, you know, industry? I think a lot of tedious work might get 
you know, sorted, uh, sped up or, you know, changed, transformed. And we're already seeing that within um, companies where there's a lot of development work, for example. You know, developers are increasingly talking about how they can, you know, yeah, generate code, get, get code checked um, much more quickly. Uh, so I think the sort of practices of work practices uh, will be transformed and are already being transformed. Um, I'm a bit of an optimist. Right. I think, uh, yeah, we need a, a, a massive societal change to be able to convince people that we can use AI even for some personal moments or personal and uh, challenging, uh, you know, um, stages in our life. I think it's uh, clearly it's it's like a next wave of yeah. uh, of, of the current uh, form of AI that, that we're seeing, and uh, I'm I'm quite concerned about uh, several aspects um, of it because it, it kind of uh, um, uh, well specifically things like large language models they 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 introduce kind of the next step in further concentration of power and control over um, over uh, AI. Um, to the point where it's now kind of offered as a service, you, you know, you can't actually, you can't even work with the technology as technology anymore. You need to kind of access it, access it as a service. There's only a limited number of companies in the world that can actually offer this approach to AI due to like infrastructure constraints and, and, and like financial resources and, and so on and so forth. Now has been development on um, generative AI that needs lower costs. Um, let's say like Alpaca or Vicuna. I think these are these are models that are way smaller than GPT three, but that but are but are said to perform just as well. So if we continue that path in making inexpensive generative AI models, if we continue to open source these, I believe that um, we would we would um, walk towards a future where um, almost every country regardless of their socioeconomic status, could have access to generative AI. Thanks for listening to the Understanding Users podcast. And special thanks to my guests, Elizabeth Churchill, Anna Tsikou, Carl Zalfrink, Kent Lyons, and R.G. Gallega. And thanks as well to our sponsor, Oxford Insights. If you enjoyed what you heard, do please like or comment wherever you're listening, and feel free to share this episode more widely. Feel free, of course, as well to drop me a line with any feedback via LinkedIn or my website, researchable.uk. Links are in the show notes. This is the first of two episodes recorded at CHI 2023. Join me again in episode 39, when I'll be in person at the conference, chatting to attendees and capturing their thoughts and reflections. Until then, stay safe and stay user-centered.